Well, it's good to be here this morning, and I love preaching outside. I get the opportunity to preach outside today, and then next Sunday I'm at a church on a beach. So instead of uh, condominiums or townhouses behind me, I have a lake behind me. But today's good because I won't get bitten by a horsefly or a deerfly, and that has happened at the church on the beach. If any of you uh, had known my father, you would know that my dad was a safety man. He was Mr. IAPA, Industrial Accident Prevention Association. And for all the years that I knew my father while he was working, he worked as an executive at the IAPA. And he was all about safety. Everything was about safety. People that knew him knew that every year he would have an IEPA pen that had a different safety slogan on it. If he really liked you, you would get a pocket yearly calendar. And if he really, really liked you, you would get a pocket protector that you could put your pens in and it had a safety slogan. And everywhere my dad went and anytime there was an opportunity to share the message of safety and accident prevention, my dad took advantage of it. It was his passion and he lived it. And he believed it. And that was what he was known for. He was a safety man. And I'm sure many of you can think of people that you know who are so passionate about something, a topic, a behavior, a lifestyle, a belief, and any opportunity that they have to talk about it, they do. They talk about it. And I can think of a number of people in my own walk of life that I come in touch with often who are like that. Uh, My bank teller often get the same guy. He is a sports fanatic, and he knows I love football, and he knows I'm a Kansas City Chief fan. But he, when I go there, I feel nervous. Like I, I need to study the sports section before I go in and talk to him because he knows so much, and he, that's all he wants to talk about, how great football is, how great his Oakland Raiders aren't, and how great my Kansas City Chiefs are. And he asks me questions, and I really do love football, but not like him. He's so passionate about it. Uh, We just celebrated my aunt's 90th birthday. And one thing that we kid my aunt about, not always in front of her, often behind her back, but she could always turn a conversation. No matter what the topic was, she would bring her dog Nipper into the conversation. And so we used to always laugh that no matter what you talk to my aunt about, she could turn the conversation to talk about what she was most passionate about And that was her dog, Nipper. Uh, And last weekend, we spent uh, a couple of days with uh, my nephew from Michigan. We don't really spend a whole lot of time with him. And I really got to know him much better this past week. And there were some interesting things about him. Uh, But one that is his greatest passion is movies. And he has created in his house in Michigan a theater with two rows of theater seats. It's a 120-inch projection screen. He's got cotton candy, popcorn, and, and all the other hard candies that you would buy at a movie theater in this room downstairs. And he literally has thousands of movies on his database. And he loves to talk about movies. If you bring up a movie, he can tell you who was in it, what it was about, and he'll give you a three-minute summary about it. That was his passion. And that's what he loved to talk about. I'm sure many of you could share examples of people that you know who are like the people that I've described. But I want to know about you. And I ask myself the same question. If someone was going to label you like they labeled my dad a safety man, 
If they were going to label you a blank man or a blank woman, what's the word or phrase that they would use to fill in that blank? What is it that you're passionate about? What is it that people know that if you get you into a corner and you got the opportunity to talk, what is the topic? What is the belief? What is that hobby that you're going to talk about? We're doing a series this summers. This summer, you're never more like Jesus than when you, and, and then each week we're filling in the blank. And I thought, you know, this week, I want to study for this week's message, the life of Jesus. I want to see what made him tick. And then I wanted to fill in the blank for his life, that Jesus was a blank man. And so I read some scriptures. And let me just give you a sampling of some of the verses that I read. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Another verse. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God. Another verse. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Another verse. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Another verse, he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that's what I came for. And then another verse, but he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was the gospel man. Everywhere he went and any opportunity he had, He preached the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God, calling people to turn from their sin, to put their trust in him, and to begin a new life. Every opportunity he had, he shared what was most passionate to him, which was that in him, those verses that Arnie and Katie read to us, the fact that God had promised that he would send an ultimate solution for sin, that he would send a savior, that he would make it possible for men and women to come into a right relationship with him, that he would establish his kingdom. All of those promises were being fulfilled in Jesus. That's the message that he shared. That's, that's the reason that he came. And here's the kicker. That's the same message that he left for us to share. You see, we are never more like Jesus than when we share the gospel. But there's a challenge. Even in that statement, we are never more like Jesus when we share the gospel. But how many of us really believe that we're like Jesus when it comes to that area? My guess is that there's some of you and you would say in that area and in, in, in sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, I can never be more unlike Jesus. If some of you are willing to be honest, you would say. Thinking of your fears and, and the obstacles of sharing the gospel and some of your previous failures, you'd say, I don't want to be like Jesus when it comes to that. Let's be honest. When is the last time you shared 
the gospel with someone. As you rub shoulders, as you converse with those you know aren't followers of Jesus like you are, how often to the, does the good news of Jesus come into your mind that that might be something that you should share with them? And I'm not saying that we need to be known as the men and women who ram the gospel down people's throats. I'm not saying that we need to be jerks and be obnoxious. We need to be sensitive to the moment. But the flip side is, that's the message that Jesus has left us to share. That's the purpose that Jesus hasn't beamed us into heaven. I've shared that with you before. Like all of the Christian disciplines, all the things that we're doing this morning, we can do all of those things so much better if we were in heaven. It would make sense that once you give your life to Jesus, he snaps his fingers and up to heaven you go. But he doesn't do that. And why doesn't he do that? Because he's left us here to be his witness, to be his ambassador, to share the good news of what he's done and what he can do in the lives of others. That's our purpose. And yet many of us fail to live up to that task. When you come to the end of the book of Matthew, you read about this purpose that Jesus has left with us. It's after Jesus has died and he's, and he's risen from the dead. There's a meeting that takes place. And at this meeting, there's going to be a huge announcement. And it's not a meeting that took place at the spur of the moment. It was a meeting that was planned. In fact, if you go a little, a few pages back from the end of the book of Matthew, you read that Jesus, when he was telling Peter that he was going to deny him three times, said that once he rose again, he was going to go ahead and he was going to go to Galilee. And then when you read of the morning that Jesus rises from the dead and the woman find the tomb empty and they meet Jesus and he says, don't be afraid. Tell, your, tell the disciples that I've risen again and tell them to meet me in Galilee because I'm going ahead. And so at the end of Matthew chapter 28, we read of this meeting that takes place. And so the disciples hear that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. So they're there. And some Bible scholars believe in 1 Corinthians, where it talks about over 500 people seeing Jesus risen from the dead at one time. Some Bible scholars believe that it was over 500 people that joined the disciples and went to Galilee for this meeting on a mountain. And you can imagine the questions that the followers of Jesus must have had. Whether it was just the 11, whether it was the 11 and some of the woman, or whether it was 500 plus 11, doesn't matter what the crowd, you can imagine the questions and the confusion and, and the doubt that they may have had that Jesus had risen from the dead and he was going to meet them on a mountain in Galilee. And yet they went to meet him. Let me just read what Matthew says about that account. It says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And I love the honesty of scripture. Because there was people who were doubting. And so Jesus appears, he was dead. Some of them are still wondering what in the world happened to the body of Jesus. Some said he appeared, but some would just say, well, that was just what the woman had to say. 
They're crazy. They're diluted. But they, they went anyways. And then Jesus appears, and yet some still doubted. And others worshipped. But what Jesus would say next would change all of their lives forever. What Jesus would say next would chart the course for the church and for us as followers of Jesus from that day on. And this is what Jesus said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And you know, this is the Great Commission, right? You've heard it. Great importance is placed on these words. First of all, because they're the final words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And as you know, often final last words reveal what's most passionate, what's most close to a person's heart. And here is Jesus, the gospel man, telling his followers that all authority and power are given to me and I am leaving you to spread the message of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus can do in a person's life. I'm leaving that with you to share. Those were Jesus's final words that Matthew recorded. And the second reason the words are important is because it clearly reveals the marching orders for the church. The marching orders for you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus. We are to be his witnesses. We are to be his ambassadors. We are to be gospel men and woman. If you flipped over to Acts and you look at Luke's recording of Jesus's final words, you'd find something else very in- interesting and very similar. In Acts 1, verse 8. So Matthew, he's, he's, he's told them that all authority and power are mine and I'm leaving you to preach this message. And then in Acts, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the one that has all power gives us this message. And then he says he's going to empower them with the Holy Spirit to be sharers of that message. So it sounds like you can't lose situation. Yesterday I was cutting the grass, uh, our lawn, and there's a couple of areas that were kind of like this, where it's been dry, nothing is growing. And as I was going along, realizing I was just wasting gas with the lawn tractor, I would come across the odd dandelion. The only thing that's grown. And it had the white, fluffy stuff on the end of it. And uh, I thought, I remember when I was a kid, I pick those dandelions, and what do you do? You, you blow them, right? And you get a real great thrill as you watch this white, what you thought was just fluff, floating all over your parents' lawn. Now you realize when you're having to take care of your own lawn, those are seeds. And you're spreading the seed of this invasive weed all over your lawn. And so as I'm cutting my lawn yesterday with the lawn tractor, I'm watching these seeds blowing out the side of my tractor. And I was doing some gardening, I guess. Because by nature, a dandelion and any other invasive weed is meant to spread and to multiply. And I don't want you to take the comparison theologically too far or too deeply, but the gospel's like a weed in a way. 
by nature, it is designed to spread and to multiply. Wherever the good news of Jesus takes root, it spreads from person to person, from family to family, from community to community. Inherently, the gospel has power. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we can't lose. We've been given a message from someone who has all power and given us a message and has empowered us by the Holy Spirit. And yet, why do so many of us fail to share the gospel? Why did some of us, when I asked, when's the last time you shared the gospel, you had to think really hard or maybe conclude, I can't remember the last time I shared the gospel. And why is it? I could go through survey after survey, whether it's Barna, whether it's Lifeway Canada, Lifeway USA, uh, whether it's the Council of Religion and Faith from the United States. Surveys where they have looked at Christians, people who call themselves born-again Christians, followers of Jesus, and look at the statistics concerning them, concerning their sharing of the gospel. Looking at church disciplines, or sorry, Christian disciplines, whether it's attending church or being involved in a small group or reading scripture or memorizing scripture or praying or sharing the gospel. And survey after survey after survey shows a decline. Shows that the church isn't doing too well. And each of the surveys tries to answer the question, why? Why is it? Why is it that people like you and me at times find it difficult to share a message that is the most powerful message that's guaranteed to be successful? Why do we fail to share it? And, and, and they, they give a number of reasons, but one of the core conclusions that every survey comes to is this. And I just want to read it. It says this, Christians are not excited enough about their faith and the relationship with Jesus Christ to share the basics of that faith with non-believers. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of three or four different studies coming to a similar conclusion. That we're not excited. Our relationship with God doesn't get us up in the morning and jump out of bed. And I'm talking generalities. I'm not accusing each one of you of being that way. But I know that that's me sometimes. And that's a problem. That's a problem for us as Christians living up to the purpose that God's given us. It's a problem for the church. Now, we're a church that wants to grow by seeing people come to Christ. But if we're not excited to share the gospel, if we're not sharing the gospel because we're not excited about our own relationship with Jesus, that's a problem. And there's got to be a disconnect. Something's got to be missing. I remember we had a friend of ours was over and we were having a problem in our basement. One of the lights wouldn't come on. And every time you flip the light on, the breaker would go off. And he came over and he's a contractor. So he knew what he was doing. And he, he traced all the wiring in our basement. He went from the breaker box to all the outlets to every light switch. Still couldn't figure out why. Every time we turned a light on, the breaker would go off. And he finally traced it. And of course, it was the very last light fixture that he looked at. And that's where we found the disconnect. There was a piece of metal from a light fixture that had fallen off and had landed on the wires. And I can't explain it to you technically, but every time the current went to it, it just flipped the breaker off. 
there was a disconnect. And things didn't work until we addressed that, which was the disconnect. And I think there's a disconnect here in the message today. I mean, if you were to follow the schematic drawing of the message today, and even if you went back to my first message where I kind of introduced this series, why why would we want to be like Jesus? And if you remember, I said, that's God's ultimate purpose for us as his followers. He wants us to be like Christ. Christ likeness is the will of God for the children of God. He wants us to be all that he has created us to be. He wants to build his character within us. And so God wants us to be like Jesus. And today we've seen Jesus as the gospel man. That was his passion. That's what he shared whenever and wherever he could. And we've been left with the same message. We have been given that same purpose. And yet we're faced with the results of those surveys. There's a disconnect. And as I thought about what I would share this morning, I couldn't get over that question. What's, what's at the core of the disconnect? And a couple of years ago, I did a series where we talked about this exact question. If you remember, it was based on Matthew 28. If Jesus says to go, why do I say no? And we looked at a bunch of the reasons why some of us hesitate to share the gospel. And those are good reasons, but I still thought there was something at the core. And it wasn't until we were at family camp at Joy, I guess two weeks ago now, that it hit me. And the speaker, he got up at family camp. It was quite unusual because family camp, you've got a very mixed crowd. You've got babies in the crowd. Sometimes you've got kids in the crowd. And you've got you know, young people right up to seniors. And he got up and he started his first message of about seven or eight telling us that he was going to take us through the early chapters of Exodus. And you better bring your Bible because what's more important is that you hear what the Bible says instead of what he says. And I thought, okay, that's what every preacher says. But literally it was true. His introduction was turn with me to Exodus chapter one, which breaks every rule that I learned at seminary about doing a good introduction for a sermon. But the way he preached scripture grabs you. And, and the words of scripture came to life. And he preached the Exodus. I'm going, this is family camps, not quite the topic. I thought that he was good, what someone would share. And the message where he talked about the burning bush, right? And Moses is in front of the burning bush and gives all the excuses. I preached that passage. It's a great passage to talk about all the excuses that we can often use when God's calling us to serve him. He didn't even cover that. He took that passage and what he wanted to talk about was the nature of God and how God is above us and the greatness and and the majesty and the holiness and the power of God, the God who was calling Moses to serve him. And then he did two messages on the 10 plagues. This is family camp. And yet he took two messages to go individually through each plague to show the consequences of disobeying God. And then he got to the Passover. And he talked about how it didn't matter if you were an Israelite or if you were an Egyptian. What would allow God to pass your home over was obedience in the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrificed lamb over the door. And he then transitioned to talk about how Jesus is our Passover lamb. And I tell you, by the time he got through these messages and we had the opportunity to worship God through song 
for what Jesus had done for us, there were very few dry eyes. And, and the worship was powerful and it was sincere and it was real. And it hit me that night. I think at the core of our disconnect with this great message and yet our inability to live up fully to the purpose and the task that God has given us is that many of us have failed to understand or maybe we fail to remember, but perhaps what it is is that we have failed to be impressed, to be blown away by the gospel message in all of its fullness. You see, we never will be like Jesus, the gospel man. We will never fully live up to the task and the purpose that we've been left with. We will consistently miss opportunities to share the good news of Jesus if we fail to grasp the fullness of the gospel message. You might be going, what's the gospel message? What's the fullness of the gospel message? I can't take the whole time to talk about that this morning. But I would encourage you to read Paul's letter to the Romans. Read that and you'll learn about the gospel. In it, we learn that the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. The gospel is the only way by which God gives life to that which is dead. It's the gospel which is the power of the church. And it's the gospel by which men and women can come into a right relationship with God. And isn't that the key question? Isn't that what you want to know about your friends and your family that you know don't go to church, don't follow Jesus, don't give any consideration for God? Isn't the question that you want to know is how can they come into a right relationship with God like you are in a right relationship with God? Because despite how many times we fail when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus, that's our desire for our friends and family, isn't it? That they would come to a saving relationship with Jesus too? So how can someone have a right relationship with God? And it's the fullness of the gospel message that gives us the answer. And so if you're going to read the book of Romans, if you went to Romans 3, and if you got your Bible, turn to it. And I just want to take a look at a few verses here. Romans 3, verse 21. And listen to what Paul says. Paul says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who faith, who have faith in Jesus. And so the question is, how can a person come into a right relationship with God? And I've said is that the answer is found in the gospel message in its fullness. And so what is that gospel message? And for some of you, you might be going, oh, just like I said, when 
the family camp speaker said, I'm going to walk through Exodus with you. I've studied Exodus. I did it at seminary. I've done sermons on it. I'm like, are you kidding? And then by the end of the week, I'm man, I'm so happy he spoke on that. I needed to hear that message. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. What is the gospel message in its fullness? First of all, the gospel starts with God, the nature of God. It's funny, we, we say, well... I want this person, my friend, my family member to be in a right relationship with God. And yet sometimes we don't know a whole lot about the God that we wish that person would be in a relationship with. What do we need to know about God? Because it's against the backdrop of who God is that our standing with him is determined. And so this is like a whole study of scripture. And so I'm going to give it to you in five words. What can we know about God? First of all, God is infinitely perfect. There's no defect in him. There's no room for improvement. And get this. His perfection is the standard for our moral character. His requirements of us to be in right relationship with him flow from his perfection. I don't know about you. That sounds a little bit scary. So he is infinitely perfect. He's also completely holy. Holy meaning that he's different. He is unique. He is totally different than everything that he has created. His holiness tells us of his purity uh, and his goodness. And it tells us that he is unstained and untouched by sin. And so God is perfect. He's holy. And what does it have to do with us? Because he's holy, he cannot tolerate the presence of evil in his sight. He's repulsed by sin. Because of his nature, he can't look upon sin. In fact, he's compelled to turn from sin. So he's perfect. He's holy. He can't tolerate the presence of evil. He's righteous, which is his holiness applied to his relationships with others. God only commands what is right. He only acts in accordance with his perfect law. He can't violate. He can't go against his perfect law. And God is just, meaning that the way God operates, the way he conducts his kingdom is in keeping with his perfect law, with his perfect righteousness. And he expects perfect conformity from those who would desire to be in a right relationship with him. And so it's important that you understand who this God is that we need to be in a right relationship with. Because it's against the backdrop of who he is that determines who we are and what our standing is before him. And here's why it's important. Because we all know people who don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to hear the gospel in all of its fullness. They may not even believe that there was a Jesus, but they believe that there is a God. And they believe that there is an afterlife. And they believe that if they live their life somehow, if they do certain things, if they don't do certain things, that they somehow will make it into a right relationship with God. But what does the Bible have to say? What does Paul here have to say about people who try to attain a right relationship with God on the basis of the things that they do, the things that they say, the things that they don't do. Because that's who he's writing to. He's writing to people who thought that they could earn salvation by keeping the law of Moses. And if you looked at Romans 3, verse 10, we kind of get a summary of of how that works out. 
As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one can live up to the perfect standards that God requires because of his very nature. He cannot allow sin into his presence. There is no one who meets the standard. And why is that? In verse 23, Paul says, all have sinned. Sin means to miss the mark, to fall short of a standard. And the standard is God's perfection. And we all fall short. It doesn't matter who we are, where we're from, how often we go to church, whether our parents were Christians, whether they went to church, no matter how many good things you do, no matter how much money you give away, all of us have sinned and we fall short of the standard. And it comes with a price because God can't allow sin to be undealt with. And if you go further in Paul's letter in Romans six twenty three, he says the wages of sin is death. Undealt with sin, trying to earn a right standing with God all on your own by all your good works and deeds only will end up in eternal separation from the Father. At this point, you might say, oh, Brent, that's why I don't share the gospel. That is not a nice message. Maybe you're hearing the gospel for the first time and you're going, I don't get it. Why is that the good news? But there's another character of God that I never mentioned. God is love. At the very core of his nature, he is love. He demonstrates his love in many ways throughout scripture, his mercy and his grace, his compassion that he has for his people. And so we come face to face with seemingly a problem. How can God meet his righteous demands against sin while at the same time demonstrating love, mercy, grace, and compassion to bring sinful man into a right relationship with himself? Because he can't compromise. Because of his perfect nature, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, he can't compromise. He can't not deal with sin. He can't wipe our sin under a carpet. Sin must be dealt with. So where's the answer? It points our attention towards the very core of the gospel message, which is the cross. Because it's at the cross where Jesus died that God's righteous demands against sin and his love for those that he would love to see come into a right relationship with God come to resolution. Because at the cross, Jesus dies for our sin. He makes a full payment for our sin and he satisfies the demands of God against sin. And that's the answer. That's the solution to the resolution of the problem between his righteousness, his justice and his holiness and his and his love. And so how can someone come into a right standing with God? Paul wants us to know it's it's not by anything that we do. We can't come up with a solution. Rather, the solution is provided by God. And when we come to verse 21, this this is a triumphant contrast to what Paul has just been writing about. There's no one righteous. No one can keep the law perfectly and earn a right relationship with God. And then in verse 21, and if you were one to scribble in your Bible, there's three phrases to underline. In verse 21, apart from the law, 
But now, apart from the law, apart from anything we can do, God has provided a solution. And it's given through, verse 22, given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And then in verse 24, and all who do that are justified freely by his grace. It has nothing to do with what we do. It's to those who believe and put their trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's a free gift. God freely extends his grace to those who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How can a person have a right standing with, with God? The answer is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that when Jesus died on the cross, he became our substitute. He took our place. He did what we couldn't do. Paul says that he became our redeemer. To redeem something is to free someone, to deliver someone by paying a price. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for our sin. He made a sacrifice of atonement, meaning that Jesus' death satisfied God's righteous demands against sin. And then it says that it's his righteousness. If you put your faith in Jesus, his righteousness is credited to our account. Because we can't come into a right standing with God without righteousness, without perfection. We can't do it on our own, but Jesus can. And his righteousness and his perfection becomes our righteousness, our perfection. And when God the Father looks upon us, he sees his son. And he sees the work of his son. And we are in right standing with God. That's the fullness of the gospel message. And I don't know, maybe you're listening and going, oh boy, I've heard that before. But I'm hoping some of you heard that one. Amen. Praise the Lord. That's a message that can save people's lives. And that's something that I want to share. I realize that the most, most of us here this morning are followers of Jesus. And we know that this is the message that we are to share. It's the task that we've been given. And, and, and I'm sure some of us here would confess that it's not an area that we do that great in. I'm in that category. came across a story about a Dutch diamond collector. And this diamond collector was looking for a specific diamond. And a jeweler in New York City heard about this guy, this Dutch collector. And he felt that he had the diamond that this guy was looking for. So he got in touch with him and he had him come over to like, take a look at this diamond. And the, the Dutch collector came into his store and the owner of the jewelry store got his best salesman and said, take this diamond. And finish the sale. And so this top salesman took the diamond and he sat down with this Dutch collector and he began to describe in great technicality all of the specs of this diamond. And within about two minutes, the Dutch collector just put up his hands and said, No, it's not the diamond I'm looking for. And he started to walk out the store, and the owner of the jewelry store saw what was happening. And he jumped up and he grabbed the Dutch collector and said, Wait, just, just one second can I have one more chance to present this diamond to you? And he sat the collector down and he shared with this Dutch collector everything about the diamond that he admired. What made that diamond so special? And in about two minutes, the diamond collector was signing 
the sales agreement for that diamond. As he was signing his name, he looked up the own, looked at the owner of the store and said, wait a second, what's just happened here? It was so easy to say no to your salesman. And here I am like five minutes later signing a sales agreement for the very same diamond. What has happened? And the owner of the store said, do you know that salesman is my top salesman? He knows more about diamonds than even I know. He is my highest paid salesperson. But you know, I would pay him double if he shared the same characteristic about diamonds that I possess. You see, he has knowledge about diamonds. I have love and passion for diamonds. I think that's applicable to some of us. I can sit and eloquently share the gospel with people, but I don't know how often I'm doing that and doing it lacking passion and love. It's only when we have a passion and a love for the gospel and the things of Jesus that we're going to find it easy. We're going to find it irresistible to be like Jesus, to be one who shares the good news about him whenever and, and, and wherever we can. And if that's you, read the book of Romans. I could give you a whole bunch of tips and here, you know, the top five helps to, to make yourself a better evangelist and share the gospel. Start with the book of Romans and pray, God, would you show me what you have done through your son, Jesus, and blow me away and make me want to be a gospel man or a gospel woman. And finally, if you're here this morning and, and this is all new to you, I know we're outdoors, so it's kind of funny to give an invitation, but I'm going to give one anyways. If you're here this morning and, and this gospel, it's kind of foreign to you. You don't really understand still. You'd love to talk more about it. Or maybe you get it. You just, you, you just want to accept it. Please don't leave. We're going to have sandwiches together. There's the people that have been up at the front. We would love to talk to you more about Jesus and what he can do for you and how you can come uh, into a right relationship with God the Father through him.